The Persistent and Nasty podcast is a series of interviews and informal discussions with inspiring women and other marginalised voices in theatre, film and beyond. From actors to activists, we aim to amplify these voices and invite the world to stay nasty. Hello you gorgeous lot and welcome to another episode of the Persistent and Nasty Podcast. Lane here, how are you all doing? Well, as you can tell, I have COVID. After two years of avoiding it, it caught me. This will probably be the most stop start of my introductions while I cough. Um, and it'll be nice and quick. Today's episode is with the incredible, inspiring, just utterly brilliant... Scottish actor, activist, songwriter, intersectional feminist, Valerie Edmund. We cover so many things in today's episode. When we begin, we'd actually just been talking about intersectional feminism as we'd been discussing a few things beforehand, in particular the Jane Campion uh, moment at the Critics' Choice Awards. Mm, So many things to say about that. Anyway, I will keep that for when I can speak completely. You can follow us on all social media, Twitter at Persistent Nasty, Instagram at Persistent and Nasty, Facebook Persistent and Nasty, send us a wee email to persistentandnasty at gmail.com. For today's episode, I suggest something soothing. I am currently having hot water, lemon, ginger and honey in the hope that it does its magic. Um, For the rest of you though, go mad, have wine, beer, cocktails, maybe a wee whiskey, um, but as always, just a good old cup of tea. Sit back, relax and enjoy. And also I think it, it ties in with what you're saying about, I mean, it's that whole thing of women, um, you know, being thin, you know, because the message, the subliminal um, message is that can you disappear? Yeah. That's what it's about. Can you be so thin? that you disappear, that's what that's doing. And that whole drive for plastic surgery, you know, essentially, you know, getting men lying on a slab and getting men to cut into us to make us better is something that is, you know, like you say, it's sort of institutionalized. I have actually never, and I can't believe I'm saying this, I have never put that correlation together that it's the men that are cutting us. Yeah. With the plastic surgery. but now women have joined the conversation because it's a career path and you know because why not you know things things come back to the law you know things you know it's not illegal it's not illegal to do it and of course there are people who have you know self-esteem issues and 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 it can be so damaging and why shouldn't they have the right to go and change you know something that has that is difficult for them to overcome it's an overwhelming disability in a sense you know that is something that has to always be available but the idea of augmenting your beauty in inverted commas to fit some kind of construct and go to a man to have him make that judgment and draw those dotted lines on your face or on your stomach is something that I I have issues with you know um, along with the idea of of not being able to eat your dinner, you know, eat your dinner, drink your wine, 
love your friends and your family, have those conversations. This is what takes us forward, not squeezing into jeans, not the self-hating rhetoric, you know, of the of the naughty, I've been bad today. No, you haven't been bad. You've been incredibly kind. You have loved your family. You've done the dishes. You've walked your dog. You've paid your gas bill. How amazing are you? You're here for another day. I was bad. I had a biscuit. Stop it. Stop those conversations. Oh my God, I love you. (laughs) (laughs) I love you. Valerie Edmund, welcome to the Persistent and Nasty Podcast. What a start. (laughs) Oh my dear. I know it's called the, the Chocolate Digestive Intro. I love it. I love it. Um, Valerie, just give us a little potted history of you so our listeners know about, I mean, they should know who you are, but. Well, I, um, I mean, that's a really, I always find that question really difficult, Elaine, because um, it's like a sort of, it's like what moniker, what hat do you wear and how do you kind of define yourself? You know, are you, you know, you know, I, I did a, an event at the I produced an event at the International Book Festival um, last year called Who's Afraid of the Working Class? And I had to introduce myself and I said, I'm a human, I am alive. You know, that's how I feel, that's where I feel we're at, that's where it's at for me. Um, I'm an artist, that's where it's at for me. I love that um story of the the Chinese dissident artist AYY who left China and you know, got to New York and he was a cleaner in somebody's apartment. And uh, the lady came home from work and said to him, was watching him clean. And she said, what do you really do? And he said, I'm an artist. And she said, what have you made? And he said, I haven't made anything, but I'm an artist. And I love that idea that you absolutely feel it in yourself, that you know you are someone who sees the world and feels the world in a particular way and wants to lift that from you to whoever's around you if it's an actor to the audience if it's an artist onto the canvas or onto the material that you're working with to make that statement about how we live about what it is to be human which is why I love actors and I love acting so much because that's essentially what it is and its reductive form is that it tells us a little bit more about who we are and it helps us on our journey. So that's kind of, I guess that's what I am. Oh, the other stuff, you know, I've done lots of films with lots of different people. I've set, I set up my own theatre company when I left the Royal Scottish Conservatoire um, and did um, plays at the Edinburgh Fringe. Um, I have, you know, been campaigning. I've been nominated for awards. I've won awards. I'm a mum. I'm a wife. I'm a daughter. I'm a friend. Um, I'm a woman who's growing older. Um, I'm alive and I am you know I am grateful for that I mean that's that could be the podcast right there (laughs) we can just just stop talking but there's I I mean so much of that is just so beautiful and I love how you put everything I love how when you speak Valerie it's so clear and you can see the thought and everything linking together and it's so obvious that sometimes I think we forget to notice all those things yeah. And I just think that's so lovely how you've said that. And, you know, people who listen to the podcast will know that we do the kind of usual chat. Like, where did you go? Where Did you go to drama school? Did you not? Like, is your love in film or theatre or writing? But what I love about when you talk is that it's all of it, because all of it is what it is to be a performer, Absolutely. an artist, a human. Totally. And I think that, you know, in this kind of modern day world, as we move towards robots doing everything, I mean, the AI, 
you know, the, um, the, the kind of whole field of robotics, you know, they will literally brush our teeth for us, that at the end of that, that, that what will be the most prized thing, and I'm talking about in a hundred years time, if we're spared, will be the artist, will be the creative person, the individual who's, who's capable of having individual creative thought. That's one thing that the AI, no matter how well they're programmed, won't be able to have. They won't be able to have a sense of morality or ethics. Well, I mean, there, there are people programming ethics um, with AI. It's a hugely developing field. But in terms of that creative thought of what it is that we see, that we feel, and how we're able to interpret that in a, in a room full of people, that will be the key. That will be the stories around the fire in the end. We'll go back to that because that is what takes us forward. I absolutely believe it. And Elaine, you know, the reason that you and I have come together is has been on the class network for equity, talking about people from working class backgrounds and um, having a pathway through the industry, how difficult it is for them. And I absolutely love, you know, standing up and being able to talk about that because I think that, you know, what we do, what artists do, what actors do is just the most important and the most unsung of everything. There's always this kind of idea that, you know, the actor is at the bottom of the food chain. Actually, without the actor, you have no story. You have written words, but you have to tell them yourself. Good luck with that. What do I remember from Kramer versus Kramer? Was it the script or was it Meryl Streep? shaking as she as she tried as she had to you know get give her son away for the weekend or Sophie's choice you know what do we remember we remember the actor and because it's the human emotion in the end that reaches in and touches us yeah I mean uh-huh I don't have any more words to add because you just say it so beautifully and you know we mentioned the fact that we have met and come together on the class network with equity and I know how passionate you are about this work that we are doing but also just the work that you have been doing for years on this and um, I would love to speak more to you about that and especially I think for people who maybe don't know your background obviously growing up in Springburn in Glasgow and then going to what is now a Royal Conservatoire of Scotland but was RSAMD uh, or just the academy as those of us in Scotland knew it Um, so kind of your pathway it would be great for people to hear that I think to know and maybe to see how their lives are reflected in that, but maybe in a sense of how things have changed, a hope of things, how yeah. things have changed. I think one of the things that I've recalled a lot, Elaine, is that moment of um, being sort of 14, 15 in the careers office at my school in Springburn Secondary School and saying to the careers officer, I want to, what do you want to be? I want to be an actress. And her saying to me, get up, go out of my office, shut the door and then come back in when you've got something realistic to say to me. I don't have time to waste on this. And I remember standing up, and that's a real powerful recall for me, you know, those tears, just that shame burning through me. How could I possibly have said that? What what a fool going to the door, ready to turn the handle, and then my hand dropping as I turned to her and said, I'm going to say the same thing, whether I go out of this room or not, and what right do you have? to tell me that I can't and that was a turning point for me how dare you but that's what it was like you were coming from who do you think you are you're too big for your boots who do you think you are that was my sandwich I was it was two outsiders of who do you think you are and a feeling of you're too big for your boots chow down on that every day yeah. It's such a Scottish thing as well isn't it it's like that thing of like and you just think you know listen 
you don't, I don't know if I can do it. You're right. I don't know. And also there's so little control. You know, you have to kind of surrender yourself to the fates in a way to hope that there's a chance of being kind of recognized, you know, if you have a talent. Um, but the first step in that is to say, I will, I will try. And that's another reason why I absolutely love the creative community, to be so brave, the courage it takes. Now, I know, listen, there's people fighting wars right now. That's beyond, that's just the courage of that is the ultimate courage to, to risk your life for your country. I understand that. But I look at actors and there's a, such a bravery running through, such a courage, a different kind of courage to kind of confront a background that says no to you and say, I will try. I will try without, without the chance of success, without any guarantees, I will surrender myself to the fates and to this journey and try to make sense of it all. Wow, aren't you brilliant for doing that? So that's kind of, you know, where I felt. And I had a wonderful mummy who just was absolutely kind of dismayed that her daughter would have these sort of inklings about, you know, wanting to act and tell stories in that way. Um, having left school herself at 14 and worked most of her life in an office before she retrained as a, an NHS nurse. But she would just look at me and say, oh, Valerie, it just sounds so, so good for you. And I'm here and what I can do to help. What an amazing mummy, you know, it was incredible. And um, yeah, so sort of coming back to that idea of just that journey, how's it changed? Going to the academy was a big deal. Um, you know, getting into the academy was massive. I will never forget the letter at the bottom of the stairs in the council flat in, in Balornock. At this stage, we'd moved out of the tenement in Springburn. I was in a council estate in, in Balornock near the Red Road Flats. And that letter at the bottom of the stairs and opening it up and it's saying, um, you have a place at RSEMD. And then, excuse me for the alarms going out, and then looking at the bottom of the letter and realizing that I had to be a year older than I was in order to get in and then going back to my school and I won't say too much about it but going into the headmaster's office asking for the application back which had to be signed off by him and saying to him excuse me sir um, could I have my application for the RSAMD back again because I have to change one of my hobbies says I with a bottle of Tipex in my hand and I Tipexed out my date of birth and changed it. So I was the youngest person to ever go to the academy. <laughs> I think I went in at 16. I think I was 16, just after 16, something like that. Mm. I love that. I think it shows the determination, A, for this industry and what you need that kind of steel, but also for you as a human to have known and been able to say to your teacher at 15, I'm not going to change my mind. Yeah. Like that's huge to be able yes. to do that, to be able to turn around and know yourself so much at 15 to go, I'm not changing my mind. When yeah. And that hierarchy, no matter what we do, we've always got that hierarchy between yeah. a teacher and being the pupil. And it's just yeah. like that is inspirational in itself. Never mind uh, cheating your date of birth. Then, so. I know we can edit that out afterwards. No, um, it's fine. I, I did say to um, Russell Boys when I was leaving the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama, I said, you know, sir, I, I changed my date of birth. And he went, Valerie, we, you didn't tell me that. I don't want to, I'm, I'm retiring soon. Don't say those things to me. You know, he said, you, 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 they'd have to go through the Senate, but I don't mind it now. And if they want to take back whatever I got, they can do it. And that was my journey. I wasn't going to I wasn't going to be able to kind of have another year of 
standing at bus stops and having people shout at me as they went by because I was wearing, you know, a berry or, you know, go down to the Red Road Flats and meet my pals and, you know, and 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 just and walk past the glue sniffers and stuff. It was hard. I was bullied at school. Um, I was tall. I wanted to learn. I wanted to absorb, you know, everything that was going. And one day my English teacher said to me, Valerie, we've got a drama school at the end of the English corridor. Nobody uses it anymore. You might want to go in there. And I remember getting the keys and going and reading Edwin Morgan, Liz Lockhead, opened up a world. And I describe it as, you know, moving from monochrome to technicolor in that moment for me. There was literature. There was Shakespeare. There was the Scottish poets. And I could absolutely connect with that language. And I thought, yes, this is happening. I can, I can feel this. This, this is something that I can take up and carry. And I would say that really to anybody who's from a working class background. I think one of the things, Elaine, I hate about the view of actors is this kind of idea of loveies. You know, there used to be a joke about when Emma Thompson and Ken Branagh were a couple, you know, she would come home and he'd go, she'd go, where are you? And he'd go, I'm in the kitchen. And she'd go, can I be in that? You know, that was like a kind of joke that they were always, all these loveys were giving yeah. each other parts and things like that. Well, I just think that's just so not true. And um, I don't know anybody who's a show-off. I don't know any actor who's a show-off. I don't know any actor who's, you know, jazz hands, you know, kind of um, like needing to, you know, oh, they oh, just wants attention. I hate when people say to, about a child, oh, look at them, they're going to be an actor. And you just think... How are they going to be an actor? What, what is it that they've got? You know, what is it? Is showing off equals acting? I don't think so. People get tired of show-offs. People don't get tired of the real thing. And I think that's a, that holds, you have to hold a very personal thing within you about how you want to share the truth. That's what I see actors as, truth seekers and very highly skilled, crafted artists who are able to reflect that truth to all of us and take us all forward. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, nobody wants a show-off. And I don't, yeah, I don't think I know anybody that's a show-off either. Most actors I know are, it's that thing Helen Mirren said it the other week um, on the SAG Awards, how um, actors are the two things. It's like huge ego, massive insecurity. Yeah, yeah. And for I most of us... the tightrope. Um, it's like walking the tightrope of high hopes and low expectations every single day you know, the high hope, low expectations. So there is that kind of thing of who do you think you are as a voice out there and inside your own voice saying, you know, I am nothing or the industry saying you're nothing because the phone isn't ringing. And I think that's the other thing that I feel very strongly about is that you don't give people permission. And that came from that that moment in school at 15, going for the hand on and dropping my hand down and turning around to say, I don't give you permission to take away my chance and my hope and you know and and my identity you you don't get the chance to do that I don't give you permission to do that and I remember I came down to London very early on very early days I was still at the academy they were casting a big show big new drama and um I came down for the audition I had to get the stage coach down it was like you know 12 quid return or something like that you know you always got a drunk guy you know eating a packet of watsits and drinking a can of special brew leaning his head on your shoulder but that's just the way it went and I remember arriving down and I had to get that that bus was leaving again at six and I think my meeting was at four no it was a bit it was at three I think and they had been out at lunch the team and they came in and they were very late and I was getting very anxious sitting on the chair waiting waiting 
And I remember they came in and this lady said, oh, you know, we were having lunch and, you know, I hope it was just, we were laughing. I hope, you know, you, that was okay. And, and I said, it's, but it's not okay. Cause I've got to get a bus back and, you know, I'm, I'm anxious. And she went, oh, don't you want to try for this then? And I said, well, I said, you know, I'm not sure I do because, you know, you've kept me waiting and the sort of energy that I had to come and meet you and travel all this way and have all this, all these scenes ready has gone. It's just, it's just, it's just shrouded in disappointment now. And so, no, and I, 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 I left. Um, and I remember walking away and it was in, it was actually in Shepherd's Bush, I walked across Shepherd's Bush Green and I thought, you know, Valerie, really, you know, like who's winning in this? But I just thought in somewhere inside me, I was. That's so important because we're so terrified, I think, yep. as actors, because there's so, so little work, so many of us, to actually stand in your own power and go, no, you're wasting my time. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and they will get someone else for it. Of course they did. I mean, who were kidding? But, you know, um, it wasn't me. And I think that your the value you place on yourself is really important. I think that's what gets you through. You don't get to diminish me because, you know, because I'm not on the front cover of the Radio Times. And that's a really interesting um, point for me as well, Elaine. Like in the last, I've never really had social media. I'm not on any social media platforms at all. So nobody really knows who I am. I don't care. I know who I am. And I know that it's in an industry that's absolutely, you know, is driven by that fame card and that thing. Well, I will sit in my room and wait for someone who's like-minded to have that conversation with me because my talent is intact. I'm ready to, uh, to contribute and to deliver my work to those like-minded people and it's not going to be me saying what I had for breakfast on an Instagram channel or you know what I you know what I did I've done a, a massive amount of work in the last few years I stood in parliament talking I was asked to speak in parliament on behalf of equity the musicians union and um, the writers guild and talk about what it was like to come from a working class background into the arts. And I was sitting opposite Ed Vesey, I think his name is, the Tory MP. And he said, oh, can we just start this debate? I'm just saying, you know, I'm, I'm posh, you know, what are we going to do about that? And everyone's laughing. And it came to me to give myself testimony. And I said, I just want to start by saying I'm poor. I came from poverty. What are we going to do about that? That's what this conversation's about. It's not about sharing the vanity of wealth and perceived success. It's about the reality of coming from a, a, an underprivileged, disadvantaged background and holding your nerve and holding your own to still be standing in this industry. How about that? I love that. Because that is exactly that entitlement, that, that line that he has that, of just doing that is that you then match it because not expecting it. Yeah. Absolutely. And it was a fantastically powerful day, you know, giving testimony um, uh, to the arts. And what, what, what I've really found, Elaine, I've lived in London now for like 25 years. And I have a lot of, the, I know a lot of people who are very seriously wealthy beyond, you know, you kind of, you, you really see that here. I think you see a different level of wealth, um, you know, and, and it comes back to that Banksy thing, you know, some people are so poor, all they have is money. And I think that that's very true. Um, and, uh, you know, on that day in Parliament, you know, talking about about, you know, about actors, about coming about about really the gatekeepers, 
you realise that a lot of people in positions of power don't actually know what it feels like to be poor. And I think that if you come from poor, it's one of the things I've been talking about recently. You know, if you're if you're coming from a background of oh, that's poor, it's a stain, actually. I think you are where you grew up, no matter where you go. You know, we've got actors from Scotland who are now in Hollywood, you know, I mean, just absolutely doing phenomenally well. What joy to see that. And so many who have come from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds, the guys especially, doing so well, soaring so high in the industry. How incredible. I would wager that, you know, this the stain, it's a stain poverty. It, it's a stain you never get to rub out. It stays with you. And that's a really good thing. You push against it or it can spread. It can spread like ink on blotting paper and you look down and suddenly it's all black. I think the knowing where you are and who you are and where you come from, even as you see, if that changes throughout your life, there is something hugely powerful in taking ownership of that. Because it is who you are. It's part yeah. of who you are, along yeah. with everything else, along yeah. with your genetics and yeah. the friends that you make and all of those things. But it's who you it's it's yeah. a fundamental foundation of who you are. And I think as well, the industries in this real moment of change. This is what's exciting about now is it's a real moment of reckoning. The minute that Harvey Weinstein got the cuffs and was and hobbled off to jail was an absolute that was an absolute titan of the industry being felled by these very brave women who came forward to call him out and, you know, and, and surrender possibly their own chances of a career. But he'd sort of ruined their core um, identity with the, his misbehaviour. Um, once guys like that start making the long walk to jail, we're starting to look at the industry with a bit more transparency. And there was a brilliant thing that Billy Conley said about it at the time when he was asked, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said something along the lines of, it's fantastic, it'll trickle down through all areas of life in business because life is how we treat each other. So for us, even though it might not be sexual, the power play that goes on with actors, the power play to not get back and say whether you've got a job or not, to expect you to drop everything and learn six scenes, you know, who, who are you? To say that we've to what we've to learn, you know, to not give us the script in its entirety because we've just to pick up the clues that we get from the couple of scenes. All of these things, you know, are, you know, I, I mean, if you can do them, that's fantastic. But if you can't do them, you've got to be able to say that you can't do them. And that's got to be met with the understanding that it merits. It's not good enough to go, oh, she's difficult. No, 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 she's difficult. She's, you know, eye rolling you know, because you're difficult. So is that it? So let me get this straight. So to be an actress, you have to be thin, you have to be beautiful, you have to be compliant, and you have to be grateful. Yeah, is that it? Is that where we're at? You know, pretty much. I mean, they used to applaud when, you know, Elizabeth Taylor walked on set because she walked on at the end and she was beautiful. It was about being beautiful. And that's what I love about so much of what's happening now is that that is changing. It's not about being beautiful. It's not enough. It's not, it was never enough. It's about being real and it's about owning your identity and taking that forward onto the set and working with equals. You are not less than them. You are equal to them and you have to hold that and absolutely deserve that respect. Absolutely. And the words that are used against women a lot, like those words like difficult and um, old troublemaker um, are never really used about the men. 
Yeah. No, absolutely. These are age-old conversations. These happen. I, I think that the men of the industry who still probably control most of it will laugh if they listen to this podcast. Well, they wouldn't really give the podcast a lot of time, to be fair, because it's it reiterates it reiterates tropes that that have been around for centuries. But what's interesting is that there might be somebody who's listening to this, Elaine, and thinks, I really like what they're talking about. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna behave in that way. And I'm talking about actors or actresses who are listening to it and say, I'm going to stand up and say, this is who I am. You don't get to treat me like that. That's what I would like the takeaway for this to be, you know, for people to be, and you know, owning their talent. Without your talent, how do they make their play? How do, who comes to watch it? Who comes to the cinema? Who sits on the cinema? What are we watching? Sure, you can film the script. Turn, someone can turn the pages and we can read this brilliant, brilliant dialogue that you've written. But without the actors, you have no show. And so actors, and just because there's lots of us, doesn't mean that you get to treat us any less, more, less more you know, of less value just because yeah. there's there's numbers. It can't just be a numbers game. It's about the human condition. That's what we're dealing with all the time. It's got to be about you know your journey and and how you get treated and that you get treated with respect, even if you don't get the job. That's that's fine. We can't do anything about that. It's a subjective game. Somebody's going to say, you know, listen, I just think she's too tall, too short, not strong enough, not whatever. We have to accept that. But in the process, we can be treated with the respect that we deserve. Absolutely. And something that you touched on there is really interesting. It's something that's been happening in Scotland, certainly for the last while. And it's about a kind of casting thing and opening up castings more. And it's that idea to me it feels like our big theatre houses and production companies forget that we're not just the actors that you employ we're also your audience mm-hmm. and that is a real thing that I don't th- quite think anybody takes on board because they're always like oh yeah the audience is there but we are your audience too and we know when it's truthful yeah. Um, and I think there's something really interesting in unpicking that as well. Um, do you think when you were at the academy that growing up and having the experience that you had to get there made it more of a like you were pleased to be there all the time or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was pleased to be there all the time. There was another um, girl called Anne-Marie, Mac- Anne-Marie, was it Anne-Marie McLaughlin. She used to touch the stone at the academy every day, like outside. That's how much it meant to people. But it was funny, Elaine. I mean, I, I went there and I remember meeting one of my year group and she said she had just come back from India from a gap year. I mean, I had no idea what she was talking about. I didn't know what a gap year was. And I didn't know. I'd never had Indian food. And she had come back from a gap year in India. I mean, this was just another level of life that was extraordinary, exotic to me. Um I yes, I threw myself into everything when there was, you know, when people were having at that point, the drama school and the music school were in the same building and you could actually go into each of them. Sometimes the opera singers would come down, we'd see them standing around the, you know, the the vending machine having a coffee and you go over and have a chat with them. It was just delightful. You know, people from the Mikado would be down, dressed in all the kind of, you know, their, their their costumes and you would sort of wander over and say, how's the show going? And it was a it was joyful, joyful times. Um, they would often have a ball um, and everyone would get dressed in kind of prom gowns, if you like, and go to the ball. I would find that the academy was open late. So I would go into the rooms and work on voice and work on various techniques and things because I would have the joy of having a studio 
that was open and I could do some more work. So yes, I was an absolute try hard and um, I threw myself into every aspect of it. I adored it. It was like, it was just like this kind of, I don't know, because I'm thinking I'm, I'm talking just now about writing a book and I was talking to my husband about um, the name of it. And I was thinking, because I grew up very, very much in the shadow of the Red Road Flats. That was my, my pals from school were there. You know, I was down there. That was my playground after school. The Red Road Flats, I lived around the corner from them on the council estate. Um, and I was thinking, you know, Concrete Jungle, where dreams aren't made of, would be a really good title. You know, Concrete Jungles, where dreams aren't made of. Because with that story, with New York, with the song, you know, New York, Concrete Jungles, where dreams are made of, there's nothing you can't do. I remember going to New York for the first time. I was like 21. I remember going up to newsagents and there was a card um, in a sort of carousel of cards, postcards. And it said, if you can walk, you can dance. If you can talk, you can sing. And I remember thinking, gosh, my experience is if you can dance, just walk is fine. Thanks. And if you can sing, talking's good enough as well. <laughs> you know, it was like this absolute sort of converse of mentality. But I love that too. I love that about Glasgow. I mean, I would say you were talking earlier, you know, who I am. I'm from Glasgow. You know, that's kind of how I feel in my life. I am from Glasgow. I am from like the best city in the world because you can't kid, you can't kid a kidder in Glasgow. And I think that it, it really, really earthed me, you know, and I remember being at the BAFTAs I had been, the, the Crow Road, I'd done a thing for the BBC, the Crow Road, and it was it came out to critical, great critical acclaim, in fact. And I was at the BAFTAs, and it was the last year where the film BAFTAs and the TV BAFTAs were together at the Royal Albert Hall. And I went to the Lou, and Ursula Andress was in front of me, and Lauren Bacall was behind me. I was in the middle. I know, what a, what a power kind of thing. And I remember standing there thinking, oh, my God, it's Ursula Andress and it's Lauren Bacall. And should I let them go? Should I let Lauren Bacall go into the toilet before me? And then just that Glasgow voice inside your head just saying, listen, you all need a pee. Just wait. <laughs> and she'll go and you'll go. And I remember coming out the cubicle and Lauren Bacall doing her hair. And she, go, and she looked at me and she said, when I comb my hair this way, my face goes that way. And when I put my face this way, my hair goes that way. And I just kind of went, oh, you look lovely. Or something. <laughs> and my mum, I remember telling my mum and my mum said, you should have said to her, you were just so wonderful and to have and to have not or something. And that's <laughs> like a film I'd never seen, but so typical. And I remember coming out and, you know, Michael Caine holding the door open as I went back to my seat and, you know, things like that. And, and I think that's really interesting how, you know, people from Glasgow and people from the West Coast of Scotland and, you know, Scotland generally, uh, you know, just have that kind of earthed quality. You know, nothing's going to phase us. You know, we are, it's not as hard as nails, but we're just not going to buy into the fandom. We're not going to go fanning around. Yeah. Um, you know, to say you're better than me. And I think I got that from Glasgow as well. So on the one hand, you've got that, can you know, can you know, just sit down and shut up, you know, on the one hand, but on the other hand, hey, listen, don't you say she's not as good as everybody else because she is. I think you get that in Glasgow and it's a brilliant combination. That yeah. alchemy, you know, that goes goes through you is fantastic. Yeah, you're right. It's earthy and real. I it think it's why real. there's so many brilliant performers from Glasgow, well, from Scotland, but... Uh, from Glasgow because as you say you can't kid a kidder but it's also it's a heartbeat the city has a heartbeat that's unlike anywhere else yeah because absolutely. we don't we don't hide our poverty either no absolutely 
And I think those com the conversations that come from that. So, for example, if you're sitting in somebody's, you know, talking about something, I um one of the other things that I do, Elaine, I I have um written um I'm I'm a songwriter and uh, I've written I wrote a track a few years ago um and it was taken up by Sony and uh you know it, it went out and blah blah anyway um so I did that and uh, and I was talking to them recently about something else that I'd written and they said oh you know you're out of contract and I said um oh I don't even know what that means and they said well what it means is that you know you don't chase us we chase you and I said so why aren't you you know, it's that, it's having that. And he said, oh, well, what do you mean? I mean, it's us. And I said, but how, you don't know, you don't know what I've written and what I wrote before was a top 20 hit. So why aren't we having that conversation? How easy is it for you to get off this call and say that, that you've taken care of business? You haven't, you might have taken care of business, but you actually haven't taken care of business because you haven't invested enough time to look at what else I've written. You want me to feel Oh, no, I'll, uh, let me send it to you. I'll, I hope you're going to like it. Why don't you do your job? Which is what is your job? It's like Adele said. I mean, I'm not competing on any level. I'm just using it as an example. But I think it's really interesting. She said, why should somebody who's sitting, you know, behind the computer all day with their little guppy pair of trainers make a decision about what I do? She's writing the work. She's singing the work. It's extraordinary. But that filters down at my little toty-toty level to say to him, why aren't you? You know, why, why you think I'm chasing, why should I be chasing you? I'm the one with the with the content that, that gives you your job. You're a, you're an AR guy, you know, I, I'm the artist. You so so you should be having that, you should be needing to have that conversation with me. And of course, you know, you say, well, you know, you're older and you're this and yeah, all of these things, all of these kind of that paradigm is shifting and it's shifting, Elaine, because of people like us because of the conversations we're having, because we're not afraid. We don't take that go-to option of walking out the room and being shamed. We don't let them do it. It's as simple as that. And that's how you get change, by standing in the room and saying, I'm not, you, you can't do it. You want that to be the takeaway as I go, I'm sorry, I'm, how could I even have thought for a second that I would, you don't do it. You stay standing. And they say, well, you know, you're a middle-aged woman who's whining, you know, you're menopausal, men don't like, I don't care. I don't care if men don't like that. I care about the truth, about opening these conversations and having them because that takes us all forward. This is such a thing as well about why is it that menopause is this terrible thing? Why is it that it's never looked at as a celebration in some way? I'll, I'll tell you why. Because we are, because while we are able to bear children, we have a value and a use. And also the act of, of being able to conceive is a pleasurable one for men. You know, that's how it's, that's how it's written. And, um, and so if once that those childbearing years are over, what's our function? That's what society, as a, a, matriarch, a, a patriarchal society wants us to think, is that how do you then define your value? Um, and, you know, that's, that's how it comes about. And that you're getting older. And as you get older, you approach death and death is a quite a lonely journey, really, as we as we near the end of our life. And I think that's what has to be celebrated. I think the growing older, I think aging is something to be celebrated. How exciting that we get to have another spring and we get to, you know, engage with friends. We get to have a drink. We get to have a walk. 
It's amazing. I mean, that is it, it. We have to really dial it back to the absolute basic fundamentals of life. And, you know, and but also, you know, how do we pay for our food? How do we earn our living? These are all the things. And that's something that I feel sometimes, you know, you read the Guardian Weekend magazine and it's all, you know, like sprinkle pomegranates over everything and have a dinner party. Have you any idea how much that costs? you an idea you know what that takes and also I, how many people are buying fucking pomegranates I mean granted maybe the people that are reading the Guardian but it's not on my shopping list well we know why we're reading the Guardian we're reading the Guardian because we feel it's a force for good and and so it must be and so it should be but it's this rise of lifestyle Elaine as well that really kind of gets me you know this idea that you know, and 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 just the kind of rise of like the yoga, you know, it's all we've all to be really mindful about other people and, uh, you know, we're to be mindful about ourselves, actually, and 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 really think about ourselves and and meditate and, you know, and, and go out and and, you know, and, and, and squat and stretch and wear very expensive lycra and pay for quite expensive classes in order to feel that we're better people. You know how I think you should be a better person? Go and do something really kind every single day and don't tell anybody that you've done it how about you shut the fuck up and you actually just go and take your jacket off and give it to somebody who's in a in a lesser position than you and you don't tell anybody and I'd say that's something that I've really done in the past sort of whatever 20 years of my life is just shut the fuck up about I mean people listening go you're not shutting the fuck up today Valerie (laughs) Hearing quite a lot about you and what you do. But that's the point of the podcast. It's only because Dee Raylene is asking me, otherwise you wouldn't know. Um, but I that is what I try to do. And actually, something that I did last year, Elaine, that I could share with you. Well, it, was la- it wasn't last year, it was during COVID. I'm very my family are very affected by Remembrance Sunday for particular reasons. And uh I just it just really gets me. And um I was aware that. Uh, it was COVID and Poppy Scotland uh, couldn't go out and camp, you know, and, and rattle the tins and get money and put poppies on people's lapels and things because they were an, they're an older generation. They weren't allowed out at all anyway. And the same with the British Legion down here. And I got in touch with um, it was the 75th year of the end of World War Two. Right. And I got in touch. I'd been in touch with the Scottish Parliament um, because they did uh, something a few years before for the end of World War One, and it was their name liveth. It was 100 years the end of World War One. Their, their name liveth. And I'd been in touch with the then um, First Minister um, about talking about doing something for 75 years of World War Two, And they wrote back and said, we can't do anything, Valerie. It's COVID and the Parliament is closed. Scottish Parliament's closed. Everything is, is shut up. But I thought we have to do something. And I wrote to the... I didn't actually know that Edinburgh Castle which hosts the Scottish National War Memorial. And in that Scottish National War Memorial, it's a kind of church inside the grounds of the citadel of Edinburgh Castle. In there is a book, and in that book is written the name of everyone who fell for Scotland um, in in the two wars. So I got in touch with, I didn't know that Edinburgh Castle was still a working barracks which it is, it's a working barracks for the Ministry of Defence. And I had to get in touch with Colonel Hugo, um, Hugo Montgomery, who is the, was the chief of the, um, the barracks. And I said to him, and I said to Colin McCreary, who's the secretary for the Scottish National War Memorial, I said, we're going to do something. We are going to read the names of the people who died for Scotland as the sun comes up on Remembrance Sunday. 
in the grounds of Edinburgh Castle with the Scottish National War Memorial behind us. We're going to do it. And they said, all right, are we going to do it? Who will we get to cover it? Who will we get to cover it? Now, we did let a couple of people know, right? But there was no press release. There was nothing. We did it. We stood there as the sun came up and we read out it was the battalions of, uh, of, of the numbers because the names themselves were so long. Um, so we read out those who fell the battalions, which battalions they were in, and the number of people who fell for the battalions, which stretched to Australia, Canada. There were people from Scotland fighting in those battalions overseas for us. And, and we read it out. And the BBC picked it up, BBC News picked it up um, and just said, this is what was happening all around Scotland. But as I was leaving, I went down and the, the president of the Scottish Legion was coming up, driving up because the first minister was coming up for a service after that in the um in the Scottish National War Memorial that day and as we were leaving and he stopped me and he said Valerie I've, I've heard that this happened today what was it like and I said it was it was beautiful and he said and you didn't um you know you didn't get it filmed you didn't whatever and I said he said you, you didn't do a thing and I said no but we did it and those that those names were spoken and it happened and that is important that that happened. And I know people listening will say, well, maybe if you put it, you could have raised more money and you could have done this and you could have done that. But they were honoured. We read out the names of the battalions and Hugo said, we remember you. Paul McCreary said, we, um, we honour you. We honour you and we remember you after every single battalion was named. And then the Legion actually did come up with their, uh, with their team who were getting ready and they did film a little bit of it. We did a bit of it with them. But what I'm saying to you is that, and I did that because I'm an actor and because that matters to me. And that's one of the things that I would say that I'm doing more now, Elaine, is that I'm taking my abilities that I have into areas that I feel that they have, that they can have meaning and that they can bring something to something that otherwise may not have happened. And on that day, that was really, really special and really, really important. Like I say, the BBC covered it. But that idea of an actor going into that and kind of going, you know, listen, this is what I'm doing. No, it's not. It is what you're doing, but you don't you can't find the words to say what it is you're doing for promotional purposes, because what they gave was their lives for us to be able to do it. And, and people will know that and people will find that people did find out about it and donations were made. But you just what I'm saying is you don't chase that thing for you. It's not about you. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally does. It's the idea of it was what you said earlier, actually, about social media. And it's the idea of making sure that it's not your ego, but it's about the truth and the feeling. And that's that's what that is. Because putting that out on social media, if you had that, that's all about gratification for you. Totally. Not about how important it is that those people were remembered. Absolutely. Absolutely. In such a private way as well. In such a private way. Um, and it was very moving. As well, it's how came. most families do it, right? It's how most people do it. They have, If they've had somebody who's died in a war or in any, whatever war it may be, and if they have that knowledge in their family that they have a little moment on a day, yeah. whether it's remembering Sunday or whether it's a different day of the year for them, um, that they have a little moment to themselves and they think about that person and they kind of say, well, I remember you and I'm grateful yeah. for that. 
Yeah. So what I'm saying is, you know, I would rather look at doing something like that. And it's no no disrespect because I know people do yoga and it's part of self-care and things like that. But it's just it's just such a rise. And, you know, we are meditating. We are, you know, it's like, you know, go out and actually just do something in that this this snarling world that we're living in. And maybe by doing a yoga class kind of by deep breathing, it helps you to do that. And that's absolutely incredible if it helps you to do that I just don't want to see more of this idea of the self it's only the self that matters you know you are just a part of of a bigger thing called you know the human existence called you know we are aging we're talking about age getting older go and 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 you know stop thinking about you all the time you know and and go and see what you can do with the you that you are that can be helpful to other people especially if you're not being given the chance to do it in your you know and by playing you know whoever at whatever you know think about that because I think that actors have that capacity for um for understanding absolutely I think there's like I think I mean, self-care is really important. Like what we talked about earlier, knowing yourself and being able to like stand in your own power and, and all of that. But it becoming selfish is a different thing, right? And it's like, we've seen it over the last two years with COVID. We've seen those people who are actually concerned for other humans in their society and those that aren't. For whatever reasons they have, but we see it and it's because, and you're, you're, I think you're right, this sense of me, 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 me rather than we and us but yeah. that's not to say that you shouldn't be able to still stand in your own power it's about finding the balance I think yeah. and I think as well this idea of self-care you know Sophia Loren they said to her you know how come you're this older actress and you're so beautiful and you're so wonderful and she said you know what's your secret and she said sit around a table eat pasta with people you like drink red wine with people you like chat, talk, laugh, you know, these simple things of connection. And, you know, it doesn't have to be, that is just so basic. Pasta's not too expensive yet. You know, tomato, chuck some tomato sauce on it, you can do it. And, you know, it's it's not too much to be able to do that and to try to connect. It doesn't have to be pomegranates and torn mint leaves. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't have to be that kind of, it, it, you know, we don't have to be affected in order to share how we feel. And I think for menopausal women as well, we don't have to be in lycra and stretching. We can be, you know, we can be drinking and laughing, you know, I mean, with each other and with our friends or drinking, you know, mineral water and laughing. It's not just a bit, it's not just that kind of, you know, dance like nobody's watching, drink like, I mean, no, you know, it's a, it's it's about what works for you. And it's about that being acceptable to you know like who why does that even have to be acceptable you know who's in judgment nobody's being in judgment it's uh, it's a brilliant thing I think you know in terms of celebrating the menopause what do I think about that I just absolutely think that it's you know that that every single stage of our life whether you have children whether you don't have children whether you you know you have your health if you have your health and you're able to get through another day and still stand up and say I'm here today it's like you said the other day when we were talking to the conservatoire you know to, the greatest achievement is to stay is to say I'm still here and I think Madonna said that the other day she got an award and she said you know people say you know I'm such a survivor and I'm so you know I've, I've had this great success my greatest success is that I'm standing here today I'm still here you know 
and whatever we think about her as a controversial, you know, I know somebody was at a party actually and they were introduced to her and, um, you know, they said, well, what do you do? And she said, I'm a recording artist. You know, brilliant. She is. Fantastic. And she is. And if uh, Madge is taking my line, I'm happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're coming up on our hour. Um, there's a would love to, I know, I know. Um, obviously you've had children and I'd love to know how, for you as an actor, how that changed you as an actor, not about the roles that you were getting or you can touch on that if you want, but what it did that thing I think that there's something when you different life stages yeah. and how that makes you change I got offered a huge big part in television national tell big big show on tv um at the time that I was expecting my first son um it would have been a transformative um sort of pathway in my career in terms of financially it would have made me financially secure probably for the rest of my life uh, it was very difficult to know what to do. Um, I I love my industry so much. I love everything about it from, you know, if it's television or film, you know, sitting on the chair, chatting to the makeup department, to chatting to your driver on the way in, to, you know, uh, just every single walking on set, you know, not tripping over the wires, you know, that thing of, you know, suddenly that, that hush in the room when the director says action and then it's on you. Here comes what you're getting paid for in that moment know your lines know what to do with them and fly you know you had to let go of everything there is no kind of ripcord you have to literally just parachute well free fall really in that moment and I love all of that um so I was very and, and of course in the theatre very different things it is such a privilege to do it and to be paid to do it I think it's the greatest thing in the world um I would say that when I was offered that part, I so that was in my mind. I thought this is going to be great joy, but I had never had a baby before um, and I didn't know what that was going to be like. And they did say that they would um, give me a nanny and that person would be waiting for me. But I would have to start the show five weeks after he was born. Um, and that was a real moment for me as Valerie to think, is it going to be that thing of, you know, I can make this work? And I knew that if I said yes to it, that it would it would change me forever. And that and I said no. And I was very encouraged by my agent to say no. She said, listen, you have never had you've never been a mum. And this is the first time. And she said, Valerie you forget your surname, you forget your keys, you forget, you know, and she was right. And also when my son was born, you know, you realize that they are just this little ball of instinct and intuition and they look up and they see the lady with the dark hair coming over and she's quite nice and she brings me things and she lifts me up when I'm crying and I feel better. And you realize just how overwhelmingly important you are to them. And, and I don't dispute if other actresses go back to work immediately that's that they were able to do that I wasn't able to do that and I'm only grateful that I knew I wasn't because Elaine if I had said yes I I wouldn't be doing the job now I they would have replaced me I wasn't able to do it it was as simple as that I I I, I wouldn't have been able to do it um my children coming along I have two sons um has transformed my life and transformed me it's given me that kind of the tiger inside me has been allowed to kind of come out. It was um, it was in a cage before. There's a great analogy where um, a, a tiger is born in captivity in a circus 
Annie's kept in a circus all the time and uh, they feed it and they go out and the tamer always, you know, goes out and locks the cage and somebody comes and looks one day and says, why do you always lock the cage? And they say, because because oh, it, it doesn't know anything except its cage. And uh, the, the tamer says, yes, but it is still, you know, a, a tiger. And and I think that, you know, so in other words, the instinct was always in it to to come out and to be the animal that it, that it truly is. My children gave me that you know they gave me the ability to to fight for you know who I who I really was I'm feeling really emotional because I love them so much but that's what I would say I just you know I just adore them and you know it was it's been such a privilege to be their mummy Um, I think they've let me be their mummy you know I don't think children belong to any of us but I think if you have them you you know you you get to pick them up and and pick up their forks and their their peas that they throw and in and it passes very quickly and that's been my great privilege to be able to live all those years with them and still earn a living in my industry that I love yes maybe not at the level that I would have liked but that may still happen and I absolutely believe that oh Valerie I'm like getting emotional as well (laughs) I it's something you've said you've said it a couple of times and you're so right our jobs, our industry, our careers can change on a phone call. Yeah. And I think what you've just said there just shows, and I hope it's a reminder to those people who are performers or artists that are listening to this podcast, that, you know, whichever way your life goes, it brings you something else that can make, that makes all those moments even more magical when they then arrive, because you've got all of that other stuff that's crackling and fizzing and, joy thanks Valerie absolutely I I agree and also Elaine thanks so much and and I I know that um I learned the other day that your podcast is applying for funding to Creative Scotland and if anyone from Creative Scotland listening in it's absolutely essential that this 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 isn't just you know it's called a podcast for for want of a better name if you like you know these names sprung up a lot but this is a forum it's a it's a platform and it's a pathway for people to walk that otherwise wouldn't find a way to walk. And that's what you're doing, Elaine. And that's why it's so important that you're supported and given the positioning that you and your, your partner that you've launched the, the, the forum with deserve. And so you have my absolute 100% backing and you will get that uh, support. I'll make sure of it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Now, just before we finish up, we ask a question. So the reason we're called persistent and nasty is we took the Elizabeth Warren quote, nevertheless, she persisted. And we like to reclaim words. So like bitch and money and all of those Fabulous. things. And when Trump called Hillary Clinton a nasty woman for daring to give him facts, there was a whole Twitter, well, I'm a nasty woman, I'm a CEO, I'm a brain surgeon, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why we're called persistent and nasty. So, Valerie Edmund, what does the term persistent and nasty mean to you? I think persistent and nasty is um, a celebration of, of the modern woman. She is persistent and she can be nasty if she chooses. And so what? It is, it is another aspect of being a wonderful um, you know, a wonderful person, a human in this extraordinary thing we call life. Be persistent and nasty. Why the fuck not? Oh my God, I love you so much. (laughs) 
Um, Valerie, thank you so much for coming on. It's been an utter joy. And uh, I, I, my heart is, is, is like emojiing to you, Elaine, and I'll see you. I'm going to see you next week in Glasgow and I'm looking forward to it, my dear. I'll see you then, darling. Bye. Until next time, lovely listeners, stay nasty. If you enjoy the Persistent and Nasty podcast and support the work that we do, please like, download, subscribe and review each episode. It really does help us get our message out and our incredible guests heard to as many people as possible.